Amen, church. Let's stay standing for the reading of God's word. This morning it comes from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18 to verse 23. And a ruler asked him, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You can be seated. Good morning. What do you mean? Do you mean to wish me a good morning, or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or perhaps you mean to say that you feel good on this particular morning. Or are you simply stating that this is a morning to be good on? All of them at once, I suppose. Well, good morning, church. Yeah, it's really that simple, isn't it? Uh, Leave it to Gandalf to complicate Bilbo's very simple greeting. I think wise people have long reflected on the meaning of that word good. If you weren't able to hear it, Bilbo says, good morning, kind of carelessly, just a common greeting, a normal person. Gandalf replies, what do you mean? Do you wish me a good morning or mean that it is a good morning, whether I want it or not, or that you feel good this morning or that it is a morning to be good on? To which Bilbo's thinking the whole time, oh, oh, you're you're one of those guys. Well, this morning uh, we're taking a break from the book of Esther, which everyone I've told so far has been really bummed about that. So I'm here this morning to be a holy bummer. Sorry about that. Uh, we're going to talk this morning about an encounter between Jesus and the famous or infamous rich young ruler, as as he's been referred to as. The passage that I just read in Luke 18, it's not a parable. It is a historical encounter between God and man, between sinner and Savior. And major, major themes and issues and heart states are revealed. Some are direct, and some are kind of more hidden in between the lines. Such as, what what is good? What is righteousness? At the natural level, how does creature measure up to creator? Even, where does money and wealth interact with our hearts and our God? So what I want to do is unpack this passage, these very few verses, and I think what actually, though, sets the stage better than verse 18. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you haven't yet, Luke 18, 18. Um, The best tee up is actually verse 9, a little bit earlier. We read this, that he, Jesus, also told this parable, here's the audience, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
So Jesus tells a parable to this crowd, this crowd who believe themselves to be righteous. It's a famous parable, the tax collector and Pharisee. And then the next scene, they're bringing him infants for him to bless, bless all the kids who come to me. And then swaggers in this young, wealthy ruler, most likely a church elder. He is a religious leader. This is a man in our passage today that believes himself to be righteous. And he approaches Jesus. No doubt he is a successful hotshot. Um, he's brimming with a sparkling reputation. Today, he would have made prom king, you know, varsity QB, probably be a YouTube influencer. Uh, I don't know why, but I picture Hangman from Top Gun Maverick. That's kind of who I picture, kind of approaching Jesus. And he asked Jesus a question. And I don't believe we're to read that question sarcastically. Uh, I think it's out of respect. Uh, so maybe it's not Hangman from Top Gun. But Jesus was respected at this point, and we've got to realize that. Um, he has this magnetic fragrance about him. He's compelling. He's kind of got this one-two punch that was just upending everyone's expectations at the time. First, he seemed to be changing up the religious waters of the day to where broken, sinful rejects of society actually felt safe approaching him. That was not the norm of the day. And secondly, he was too smart, too wise to be pinned down by a Pharisee when they came to debate him or when they came to accuse him of something. It's like Jesus is in another league, almost like he's God or something. And so I think from the rich young ruler's kind of brain, from his viewpoint, Jesus is, it's worth picking his brain over this question. You know, I don't know if you have some people in your life where it's like, this person's super smart. Let me throw this question at him. And so he's like, man, I, I'm, I'm going to pick Jesus's brain on this. So he walks up to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so let's just pause and kind of freak out for a moment, right? Someone just walked up to Jesus, like, Jesus. And he asked, yo, how do I get saved? And of course, we're thinking like, Jesus, this is a softball of softballs. Just answer me. It's, it's all you got to say. Me. I, I'm your answer. Say it, Jesus. Say me. But he doesn't. He does not. So either Jesus misses it or he's so far ahead of us that it's literally going to take us 20 or 30 minutes right now just to play catch up. That's what's going to happen. That's what's about to go down. Because Jesus does not respond with me. He doesn't respond with, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Me. He does say that to someone else. We know that's true. But Jesus doesn't take that route with this guy. Why? Well, that's what we're going to kind of unpack. This rich young ruler is not ready for Jesus to respond with me. How do you inherit eternal life? Me. He's not ready. Instead, Jesus presses the man on the word good, like Gandalf, except light years ahead, even of the old wizard. So in verse 19, we read, why do you call me good? Nobody's good except for God. 
So I imagine Jesus's eyes narrowing a little bit when he asked this question. Why do you call me good? Nobody's good except for God. And this rich young ruler who came looking for an answer suddenly has a question thrown his way. And so he was pretty confident. I imagine he's kind of on his heels a little bit now. A little bit out of his comfort zone. He's probably not going to show it yet. He's going to play along, but he's kind of rattled this guy. But theologically, we also have to kind of zoom out and think, okay, what? Is Jesus denying his own deity? Right? He just said, why do you call me good? Nobody's good except for God, right? Maybe implying me. There's, there's God and there's me. Why are you calling me good? So is Jesus denying his own deity? Or is Jesus denying his own goodness? What, why are you calling me good? Is that what's going on? Well, at first glance, it might look that way. Unless he's headed somewhere. Watch this. Jesus is trying to get this young, successful, deeply spiritual, respectable, respectful young man to contemplate that word good because it's going to unravel a few things. There are at least four angles, four implications that Jesus is making, he's taking with this one question. Why do you call me good? First, What Jesus is saying to this man right off the bat, he's saying, young man, what is truly good? Like, I know we throw that word around carelessly. I know we all use the word good. But just pause for a second, young man, and just think. What out of anything in all of reality actually deserves that adjective good? And the answer, of course, is God. God alone. When we really think about it, he is the only one that deserves that adjective good. If we were going to make that word good sacred again. Okay, second, if only God is good, young man, what does that mean for you? See what Jesus is doing? Suddenly, you begin to see this rich young ruler's self-righteousness is starting to unravel. It's starting to come apart because his earthly success is grand. Nobody would argue that. But this little candle, put it up to the light of the sun, and it's not comparing. So if God is good, what does that mean for you? Third, if only God is good, why are you then calling me good? What are you saying about me? Jesus is implying in rapid succession, if you say I am good, are you saying that I'm God? Fourth, So if you aren't good, but I am good, what comes next? You ask the question, how do I inherit eternal life? What part do I, Jesus, play in your formula for inheriting eternal life? You see that Jesus does a lot with a few words. And I think he's just displaying the infinite wisdom of God. And we just get to marvel at it. It's amazing what he does here. Okay, now let's remember the guy's original question. How do I get saved, right? That's what he's asking. How do I inherit eternal life? And so Jesus starts with that word good, but then he continues into rattling off a few of the Ten Commandments. We see that in verse 20. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder or steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now we all know what Jesus is asking. Hey, Young man, 
Have you kept the commandments, all of God's commandments perfectly every single day of your life? Which we would all, I mean, just, we'd say, no, of course not. No one does. But this young man shocks us with his response, doesn't he? Right there in verse 21. All these I've kept from my youth. Sure have, Jesus. Bet. Kept them all since a young boy. It's shocking. But I think it's kind of a hold up moment. A light bulb maybe is going off in our brains right now. Now we understand why Jesus took this route. You see, if Jesus would have answered me, hey, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? Me. If he would have said that at the beginning, hey, I'm your pathway to God, the man would not have been ready. He would not have been ready because in his worldview, how he's approaching Jesus, in his thinking right now, he has no need for Jesus. He has no need. A healthy person doesn't want to go to the doctor. Someone who thinks they're found isn't going to go to, you know, the the lighthouse, isn't going to go to their shepherd. And so this man is living in the delusion that he is already qualified into the kingdom of God. We didn't see it at first, did we? We saw a softball response, and we were waiting for Jesus just to knock a homer, but Jesus doesn't. He saw the barrier between him and Jesus, the gospel. This rich young ruler actually believes himself to be good. He has no need for Jesus in his own mind. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century English pastor. And by the way, I think every sermon I've ever preached and probably will ever preach will involve either Lord of the Rings or J.C. Ryle. This morning you get both, and so I expect revival. This is going to be a good one. Uh, J.C. Ryle wrote in his book, Holiness, men will never come to Jesus and stay with Jesus and live for Jesus unless they really know why they are to come and what is their need. Those whom the Spirit draws to Jesus are those whom the Spirit has convinced of sin. That is precisely it. Jesus himself taught when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he... The helper, the Holy Spirit, comes. What will the Holy Spirit do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And I know it's easy for us to get all bent out of shape about sin and conviction. I I do too when I'm, you know, if I'm just kind of just on maybe on an off day or I'm just not thinking clearly. Maybe sermons that Michael preaches or whoever, they get too close to me. I can get all bent out of shape a little bit. But Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper in the context of convicting us of our sin and therefore need of God. In the context of convicting us of sin, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. How does he help? By convicting us of sin. Y'all, one of the best realities of kingdom living is God convicting us of sin. And I don't want to romanticize it. Like, it's awful. It's awful. 
We all know, if you're in Christ, you know that gut, sour, churning, where you know we have strayed. But the Spirit, in that moment, in that conviction, is actually helping us. Alexander White was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century, two 19th century guys. He was an intense Scot. Most Scots are intense. And I'm not going to do a Scottish accent. I'll leave, that, I'll leave that to Michael. And he was known for drilling down on sin as a pastor when he, when he preached. Well, you know, as a child, his, he had an accident. His arm got caught in a threshing machine, and everyone thought he was going to lose his arm. But a skilled neighbor did not let him, his mom, take him to the hospital because they knew they were going to do surgery. They were going to amputate it. So the skilled neighbor said, no, keep him here. Keep him in your house. And sometimes he would have severe pain. So much, I mean, you can imagine. Alexander White's mom was just worried. But the neighbor would always do check-ins. And if he was in severe pain, the neighbor would always say, I like the pain. I like the pain. Why? Because the pain meant that that arm was alive. The pain was actually a step towards recovering. That pain was, it led to that arm actually being healed. And so decades later, he kept, he kept his arm, but decades later as a pastor, after his sermons, he would frequently, you know, when he would just come hang out and, and just you know, people would come talk to him, he would often get complaints that his sermons were too critical. He would preach too much at people's sin. And so his response always was, I like the pain. I like the pain. As new creatures in Christ, church, we feel pain, sin, pain, that we didn't before we knew Jesus. We agonize over our strain. And this is actually beautiful. It is the work of God in our life. It is pointing us to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is carrying us into Jesus' arms with that conviction, pointing us towards holiness. We know that this sin is leading us astray, even if it's bringing pleasure. Even if it's bringing short-term gain, it is not leading to flourishing, and we know it. My, uh, my professor in seminary used to say that the moment we start living for Christ, we are justified, we become Christians. The Holy Spirit gets out the sword and sticks it in our back and starts pushing us towards Jesus. And it's when we resist that it really starts to hurt. And it's not the Holy Spirit being mean. It's the Holy Spirit loving us. It's the Holy Spirit on a mission to make us more like Christ. And so we are not to resist that sin pain. We are not to allow calluses to form in our life. We don't amputate the pain. We don't harden our hearts. We are to stay soft and responsive to the conviction of sin in our life. And then we amputate the sin. We amputate the stair steps we took towards that sin, the habits, the circumstance, the friends we're with, whatever it is. We amputate that, not the pain. The rich young ruler did not have conviction of sin. The rich young ruler does not have the Holy Spirit in his life. He thinks he's doing quite fine. Thank you very much. He blatantly says, I've kept all these commandments. He is blind. 
He is as far away from Jesus as you can be. In proximity, he's the closest man in the world to Jesus at this moment, this historical moment, and he could not be further. In fact, this is the most frightening spiritual state a human can be in. This is when good is bad. The world doesn't operate like this. This man passes all of earth's tests of good enough, wealthy, respected, even spiritual. He's, he's, re, he's respectful of his elders. I mean, check, 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 check. You go down the list. He's got it all. False religions don't operate like this. Some even under the guise of Christianity. That material vastness somehow equates to divine blessing. That if you're doing good, healthy, and you're, you're flourishing with your body, somehow you have the favor of God. We might call it the prosperity gospel. It's pervasive. It's monstrous. But we also got to realize, guys, that that can plague our own hearts as well if we're not careful. I know it can creep into my thinking. You know, I was originally going to preach until verse 30. That's kind of the whole passage. But I felt the burden to stop at verse 23. So I hope the Spirit's leading me there. But if we were to peek down at verses 24 to 26, we see this kind of assumption in his audience, even in his disciples. Verse 24 says, So Jesus, seeing that he, the rich young ruler, had become sad because he walks away. We'll see that in a second. He, Jesus said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's so much that could be said there. But our, my point is in verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? You see the assumption right there. If it's difficult for the rich, which by the way, most people in this room, including myself, to be saved, if it's rich for the, for the rich to be saved, then who can be saved? They've got divine favor. They have vast material blessings. If they can't be saved, how can we be saved? None of us have a chance. You see that assumption, and that's why Jesus is killing that right here. Material and physical and emotional prospering is such a blessing, but it, it does not equate to divine blessing necessarily. And neither does the opposite. That somehow when we suffer, God is against us. We Christians count suffering and affliction as reason to celebrate. For the Lord Jesus himself is with us. And we know he is for us. Plus, we know that Jesus himself and Paul and every apostle and all the martyrs whose blood seeps through the pages of history fail to qualify for the prosperity gospel. Because they all suffered and were killed. None of us would qualify. So Jesus is killing that here. Well, we know this man's response laid heavy on Jesus' heart. We know that because uh, we know Jesus. In Mark's gospel, as Mark kind of recounts this historical encounter, he adds a line in there that I think is so awesome. He said, and Jesus, at this point in the story, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, dot, 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 
Now we're back to Luke's gospel. Said to him, verses 22 and 23, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. So I want to make sure we're clear on language that I'm using. I don't know if it's true uh, overall, but let me just kind of the words that I'm using up here, love and kindness. Okay. Love is not kindness. They are different things. Love is kind. First Corinthians 13. But love is more than kindness because it can involve barbs. Kindness doesn't hurt anybody. Love does. It involves truth. It can wound people. It is not kind, as I'm using the words, it is not kind to tackle someone onto a sidewalk, even if it's getting them out of the way of an oncoming car. That's not kindness, but it is loving. Do you guys see the distinction I'm making? Our culture kind of blends the two. And so love is only the sweet, soft, sugar, kindness things. Okay, Jesus here, the way I'm using it, follow me. If you can disagree, that's fine. Jesus is not being kind to this man. He is being loving to him. It is not a kind thing to send someone, send someone away sad. But it is so loving. It's not mean, but it's loving. He loves this man by making him sad. He loves this man by telling him the truth. He loves this man by turning him away. Now, again, theologically, we have to zoom out again because Jesus said something that's kind of problematic at first glance. Is he promoting a works-based salvation? The original question, how do I inherit eternal life? His answer, give your money to charity. Is that what's going on? You can earn God's favor by donating enough money to charity. Maybe that's what Jesus is teaching, or he's 10 steps ahead. What's he up to? Well, the operative command here is there at the end of verse 22 when Jesus says, follow me. It's the last words he says, follow me. But why won't the man follow Jesus? It's because there's a barrier there. There's a barrier there. His vast wealth. It's his money and his status and his comfort and his reputation, all of which we would call an idol. That's what we would say, an idol. Here is a man who just claimed to have followed all the commandments all the days of his life, but he can't even follow the first commandment. To keep God first and not put anything before God. And so like a thunderclap, this rich young ruler is exposed. There is a false God, lowercase g, keeping him from following the one and true living God. His possessions. God in the flesh just demanded of him to destroy the idols and follow him, follow, him, follow me. But he doesn't. This man doesn't. Jesus saw from the very beginning exactly what was about to unfold. When that man approached him with, hey, good teacher, Jesus knew exactly what his heart state was, 
how to navigate the conversation towards exposing that heart state and that he would walk away sad. He cared more for the young ruler's heart than just pouncing on that salvation question. He led the man wisely, gently, and pretty quickly straight into the first commandment to where the man's own claims there at the beginning actually exposed him at the end. Jesus never shared the gospel with this man. It's pretty wild when you think about it, isn't it? A man asking, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus never shared the gospel with him. He wasn't ready. He needed to be turned away sad. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I think as Christians, we want to look to apply this passage to our life. And so I've got two things. First, we must be aware of our own sin. And that's not like a common thing. Like we, sin naturally is blinding. And so we've got to fight to become aware of our own sin and be quick to celebrate conviction. To celebrate conviction. I like the pain. I like the pain. Knowing that the Spirit is molding us into the image of Jesus. Guys, the moment that we think we're good on our own and we lose trust in Jesus' sufficient work on the cross, we have not graduated in the gospel. We're not like a step ahead. We are in a frightening place. And so I just want to ask, where are your calluses? Where are those places in your life that you have allowed to harden? And you're not as soft as, as where you used to be. Things you once did horrified you. But the times, the frequency, maybe the days, the years have kind of unfolded. And we've been hardened. We have calluses. Where are those in your life? Second, we've got to work to uncover and kill our idols because we have them. It's not like, man, I, I wonder if I have an idol. It's how many dozens do we have at one time? We have them. And so we've got to be vigilant about exposing them and killing them. And I think one of the ways we can do that really practically I hope this isn't confusing. I, I, I tried wording this in such a way that it made sense. It makes sense to me. Hopefully this helps. But on, on just a basic human level, and I think this is what Jesus was doing too. When this man was approaching him, Jesus was looking out for this man's glory, finding out what's awesome about this man, and then quickly understanding that there is garbage on the other side of that glory. And that's true for all of us. So here's what I mean. If this man is walking up to Jesus and he's successful and he's rich and he's respected and he's spiritual. His glory, none of that is bad. It's all good. It's glorious. What do you think he struggles with? Probably thinking that he's good enough, right? See that? He looks out on other people and he's comparing himself and he's like, well, I know I'm doing better than everyone else. I'm probably, probably good enough. Glory, garbage. So let's get personal for a second. I'm willing to get a little awkward and vulnerable, and I hope you'll hear my heart in this. 
to talk about myself so that we can, you can, in your own heart, maybe uh, expose and kill some idols in yourself. Um, so look, looky here, I'm, I'm on stage right now and I have a spotlight on me and I have a microphone so that my voice is the loudest and most important in the room. And I've got cameras and I've got an audience, not a church family, an audience. You guys see where this is going? And look at this. I'm not just talking, preaching the word of God. So think how important I must be. Now, glory, garbage. Glory. I love Jesus. I've been gifted to teach. That does not make me the best. It does not mean that I'll be remembered, but I can talk most of the time real good in front of a crowd. I have character. I actually care about you guys. Okay, on and on and on. Those are the glories. That's, that's awkward. Let's just name it. Here's the kicker. Who's at the bottom of everything I just named? Who's at the bottom of all of my glory? God. He made me love Jesus. That wasn't my idea. God gifted me to teach. God gave me the spirit to pursue holiness. My entire existence, when I'm, at, 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 you know, I'm on my good days, glory days, is a gigantic pointer finger to God. I mean, you, we should never leave church and think, oh man, this person was awesome. God, God is glorious. God is awesome. Okay, but how about my garbage? Even up here with all the glory that I just named, Again, this is embarrassing, I'll be quick, but how toxic in my thoughts and my deceitfulness do you think I can get on my bad days? Where do you think my idols come up? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Just being right here, Justin, just as preacher, as pastor up here. Well, I'm special. I want them to like me, and so I'm going to pull a couple punches for my sermon so that I don't offend them too much and they like me. I teach the Bible because I'm worthy. I'm on the stage elevated because I'm holy. You guys see where I'm going with this? That is how I think. So that, there's a little bit of me. I could get a lot more toxic and, and, you know, that's just the way we are. But I want to ask you now, how about you? Where is your glory? Where has God gifted you? And where is your garbage? Who is at the bottom of your glory? Let's say you're wealthy. Maybe you're athletic. Where are you skilled? Are you high capacity? Are you great at making decisions? Are you an expert networker? Are you a great coordinator? Maybe you're excellent with people or you're excellent with details. Whatever it is, let's get humble. Who's at the bottom of all of it? God. He has gifted us glory, and we twist those things to make them about ourselves garbage. Now, I said all of that just to say that can be a helpful way for us to practically uncover idols in our own hearts. That was very long-winded, and I'm sorry, but I didn't know how else to do it. Looking at where we're awesome, and that's not a boast. God has made us glorious with dignity, has gifted us, but we turn, our hearts turn those great gifts into idols. And that's just a way for us to just get real practical about naming them. Okay, I'm going to move on now. As we close, that man walked away from Jesus. And he was sad. 
But I can't help but wonder if he was actually closer to Jesus leaving Jesus than how he was approaching Jesus. What if that sadness led to a heart check? Jesus' words, maybe they haunted him and it left him with a lot to think about. And so he left sad, but Jesus' words, he was weighing them against the idols of his own heart that Jesus clearly just exposed. And what if he found them to be true? That right there becomes the Petri dish for the Holy Spirit to show up and convict and to show where the Savior is, Jesus. In fact, this is pretty cool. Church tradition links this young ruler, this rich young ruler, to Joseph of Arimathea, the wealthy man who in a couple years would purchase the tomb for Jesus' body after the crucifixion before the resurrection. Now, we await confirmation in heaven, but church history does say that it's the same person. Let's just go off the assumption that it is, okay? Could be wrong. Let's say that it's the same person, that he walked away sad, but ultimately relented, circled back to follow Jesus. He kept his money, didn't he? Because only a wealthy person could have been able to purchase a tomb like Jesus received. That's because money was never the issue. His heart was the problem. Now, money, let's just get practical for one last second. Money is a real good, uh, it's real good about showing us where our heart is. If you follow your money, you'll start, that's another way to just practically figure out where your idols are. Follow your money. For the rich young ruler, money was a problem right here. He kept money on the throne of his heart. But in time, he gave that spot over to Jesus. And he learned to treasure the right thing, God. If Jesus confronted you today, what would you need to remove from the throne of your heart? I know money can be a problem for me. I bet that it can be a problem for you as well. But what else? What are you treasuring on the throne of your heart right now that's not God? Let's remove it. Let's, rem let's reserve that spot for Jesus because in the end, that is a good thing. Let's pray. Well, God, in Jesus' name, we, we want to praise you for your holiness. We want to praise you for your wisdom. In, in the spirit, we thank you for your willingness to convict us of sin. It is not your way to embarrass us. It's not your way of saying, told you so. You want us to be made more like Jesus so that we are flourishing. We're like the Psalm 1 tree. We're like the sheep and green shepherd of Psalm 23. And also, God, that's when you receive glory. Jesus is, you are, the most satisfied, happy, joyful person. You are a walking garden of Eden. And that's what we get to read in the Gospels. We as a church of individuals, God, right now we want to confess that very sin that's kind of driving our hearts. The sin that we fight so much, and maybe it's the sin that we have allowed to win in some sense. God, would you call that out? There are sins that we protect with all our might, but you know it's killing us. 
Lord, would you give us your strength to confess that now and to work to kill it, starting with maybe a close friend that we can confess that sin to. We love you, and we hope to love you more. Praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.